Well, good morning. How are we all doing? That doesn't sound very good. Gee. Oh. So, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but yes, I'm back. The worst news is I'm back to stay. Um, my wife and I have turned in a membership application. And... Uh, We're looking, we're looking forward to being grilled by the elders to see if we're worthy and qualified and whatever. But, uh, you know, I, we've just fallen in love with you all. We love Rick and Brenda and uh, love the ministry of the church and uh, just look forward to being a part and serving Jesus here along with you. So I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but that's the truth. Um, from time to time, I'll be speaking elsewhere. Last Sunday, I spoke at a church in Corona and drove them crazy. Their pastor stands in one place when he talks, and they videotape the uh, service. And so they set the camera up on Pastor Mark, and then they walk away. Well, when Roy shows up, and he's walking over here, and he's over there, I, I drove him crazy. Um, uh, next two Sundays, I'll be preaching in San Diego. Our pastor at our church in San Diego, Glenn Sykes, just had uh, double bypass surgery. And uh, you might jot his name down and think to pray for him as he recovers. He's hoping to preach on the 23rd, so he's invited me to come and help him out the next two Sundays. Um, we'll go periodically to church with our daughter and our grandsons just to be with them and share some time with them. But uh, we're looking forward to being here with you all, so I hope you're looking forward to being here as well, right? If you look at the front of your bulletin, there's two words in white text. Do you all see the word, two words in white text? What are the two words in white text? So I haven't been here every Sunday this year, but I understand this is the theme, right? And uh, I haven't been here every Sunday, but I haven't heard, and maybe Rick's done some messages on worship, I don't know. But I thought, I'd like to come and share with you some of my thoughts about worship after being a pastor for almost 15 years. Um, And just to share some things that have uh, spoken into my life and into my heart. So I have a question for you. What is the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear this word? What is the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word worship? What is it? Pray. Pray. Part of worship. What else comes into your mind? Singing. What else comes into your mind? Love, giving, anything else to jump into your mind? Fellowship, reading the Bible. Nobody said drums. Nobody said saxophone. You know, honestly, Jessica, that's the only reason I love to come to this church is to hear you play the saxophone. Um, When she gets to do her, her saxophone solo, I'm like all over that. So, uh. But, you know, I've come to the conclusion, at least in, in my life experience, that most Christians don't really understand what worship is and how it's to touch and influence our lives. I grew up in our church in Long Beach, and... Church service was pretty similar every week. You know, we sang, the choir sang a number, we took an offering, and then Dr. Mays, my pastor, as I was a young boy, he preached, and we came back the next Sunday and did it again. Does that sound familiar? You know, and uh, we like to believe we don't have a ritual. You know, rituals are for those high church, you know, the Episcopalian, the Catholic. We don't have a ritual, right? Wrong. 
Because we do the same thing, you know. Um, but I discovered in my life experience, I went to a Baptist church with two of my buddies in high school that I played ball with. And they didn't do communion right. That was really bizarre to me. And then when I was on the pastoral staff in Long Beach, we had a couple who visited our church. From, they, they had moved over from England and they came to our church. And of course, when they were in England, they attended the Church of England, right? Any former Church of England people types here? Really? I was expecting a big no to that. Um, but when I, when I talked to them, you know, they had all these questions. Well, how come, how come the priest didn't process in at the beginning of the service, followed by the choir behind him. And how come he didn't wear a robe? You can't have worship without that processional and the robe thing, right? And uh, I had the opportunity and experience to visit a Catholic church. And that was a very different experience for me. You know, people would come in and they kind of stooped and crossed themselves. And then the whole service was kind of like what I call aerobic church. And it was up and down and kneeling and standing. Uh, that was very strange to me. And I went to a Lutheran church. And that's where my mom grew up in a Lutheran church before she met my dad. And so I visited a Lutheran church. And they had certain phrases that they used. And they stood and sat. And, and I never, I just did what the woman in the row in front of me did. Whatever she did, that's what I did. And, uh, but I found all that kind of confusing because what is worship? And it seems to me that God wants us to be worshiping people. Is that a good guess? Um, it just seems to me that's, that that's what, uh, that's what God wants. And so this morning I want to talk to you a little bit about worship. And the place to begin is how do you define the word worship? How do you define the word worship? Well, in your bulletin on the back of my sermon notes I put in there for you, there's a passage of scripture from 1 Chronicles 16. And uh, when I was in the church in Sacramento, when I left Long Beach after being on the staff there for nine years, I went to Sacramento and pastored there. And I found there were people in the church that had different ideas about worship. Like you couldn't worship because... The woman who played the organ didn't come every week. And how could you have worship without the organ? And, and I used an overhead projector because these things were yet to be invented, right? And that, you know, that, that wasn't worship, that overhead projector thing. And uh, I remember one of the women telling me, you know, how, we can't have a service without responsive readings. So we're going to do a responsive reading so my friend Rita will be pleased. Um, so I want you to take that little page out of your, out of your bulletin. Y'all got it? And uh, we're going we're gonna to read this together. And uh, you can see some of it's in bold print. That's your part, right? Can you all see some bold print? Someone say yes. All right. So I'm going to read the part that's not bold, and you're going to read the part that is bold. Okay, you're on the same page. So as we read this, I want you to notice what it is that impresses you. This, this psalm, this song, was, was written in the context of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. King David has built a tent. Why did he build the tent instead of a temple? Because God wouldn't let him build the temple. And so David had built, put up a tent, 
And this was a, a, a highlight in David's role as king. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the song of praise and thanksgiving in this high water mark in David's rule as king. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Tremble before him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exalt and all that is in it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. the most in that awesome song? What's, anything jump out at you? Anything impress you? Anything strike you? Nothing? <laughs> the whole the whole of creation is captured in this song. All of creation and all of creation is called upon to do what? Worship God. You got your hand up back there. What were you going to say? It doesn't just talk about people worshiping God. It talks about everything that He made. Oh, there you go. I should have let you talk first. That's, you nailed it. You nailed it. I should let you go first. Um, the whole emphasis of worshiping God. Um, we have an English word, worship. Which basically is worth-ship. The whole concept of worship is wrapped around the idea of worth. When you hear the word worth, and we just use the word worthy, worth-worthy. When you hear the word worth, what, what do you think of? What comes into your mind? Value. And so when we give God worship and we attribute worth to Him, what are we saying? We value Him. He's important. 
And so our, our English word worship speaks to attributing worth and value to our God. Interestingly, the Old Testament word for worship, which appears 173 times in the Old Testament, that word, the idea of that word is to kneel, to bow. It's, the, the root word is depress, to press down. And the idea of that Old Testament word of worship is that we would bow, we would kneel, we would be prostrate in God's presence. I have people that tell me you have to stand to worship. And I could take five minutes to tell you why they tell me that, but I don't want to have to answer that argument with what the Bible says. Um, you know, you can worship on your face, on your feet, sitting, lying down, right? You can you can't. But that Hebrew word had that idea of being prostrate and bowing down. The New Testament word that's translated worship is an even more fascinating word. And it's used 70 sometimes in the New Testament. And it's a combination of two words in the original language. To kiss toward. So the idea of kissing toward um, is the idea, again, of affection, love. Adoration, devotion, all those kinds of words. Basically, worship is recognizing and acknowledging God for who He is and what He does. And if you were to take that portion in First Chronicles that we just read, you would see that sprinkled through there. Who He is. The kind of God that we have. What kind of God do we have? Loving, awesome. You just think of words right away, don't you? Worship is recognizing and acknowledging who He is. And what He does. His acts. His deeds. God done anything for you lately? Sometime in the last 10 or 20 years, maybe. You know? We have an active, living God who does things for His people. And if you were to look at that passage in First Chronicles 16, you see who he is, what he does. And so the focus of worship is on who? God. And it's not on us. And the whole point of worship, the goal of worship is what? To bring us together with God. Close. Who said that word close? That's the word right there. To bring us into God's presence. That's the whole point. And so when we understand what worship is, and we define worship in those terms of recognizing and acknowledging God for who He is and what He does, and that when we worship, whether we come here on a Sunday morning at 1045, or whether it's at 6 o'clock in the morning in your bedroom or your living room, wherever that worship takes place in your life, what's the goal? Draw near to God for Him to draw near to you. And God's promise in the Scriptures is, if you draw near to me, what? He'll draw near to us. <laughs> if I told you that next Sunday, um, Kobe Bryant was going to be here, some of you wouldn't care. Um, some of you go, Kobe who? Um, but, you know, we have this celebrity thing in our culture with movie stars we worship, sports athletes we worship. <laughs> My dermatologist told me, you're a sun worshiper. Yeah, sort of, kind of. I like being outside in the sun, you know. He said, well, we've got to fix that. To attribute 
value. That's what worship is all about. So what I really want you to focus on with me morning, this morning, and I love this quote. In every circumstance, when a believer allows himself to be confronted by his God, we're close to God, we're confronted by him, we're together. In every circumstance, when a believer allows himself to be confronted by his God, he will do what? Worship. He will worship. And you can see so many illustrations of that in Scripture, right? God shows up and what happens? People are on their face. God rightly perceived will always be a God too big. Too big in his forgiveness. Too big in his love. Too big in his judgment. Too big in his grace. Those are good words, aren't they? You and I have the privilege, the joy, and the opportunity to worship a too big God. That, that ought to stagger us, shouldn't it? That ought to overwhelm us. And I think there's some practical implications of that that we want to talk about before we're done. So how important is worship? What's the big deal? How important is it on a scale of 1 to 10 to God? 10, 12, 15, 20. Um, Worship matters to our God. He calls us to worship Him. And to worship him means we acknowledge and recognize him for who he is and what he does, right? If you like my working definition. So how important is worship to God? So my first thought is this, as I've sought to answer that question. Worship is the first and most important commandment. Do you remember when Jesus was confronted by the lawyer in the New Testament? And trying to trap Jesus, asked him what the foremost commandment was. Anybody remember that besides me? Okay. So when Jesus answered that question, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with some of your heart, some of your, right? No, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. And if you and I were doing that, what else would be left? Nothing. That kind of covers the landscape, doesn't it? And, and Jesus, when he spoke those words, was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Where Moses confronts the nation of Israel and says to them, the Lord, our Lord is one. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that whole passage talks about uh, the responsibility we have as parents and grandparents to teach our children and grandchildren. That it matters that you love the Lord your God with all, all, right? Did I tell you before that all means all and that's all all means? Um, All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So worship is the first and most important commandment, so that suggests it's pretty important, right? My second thought is this. Worship is and has always been a priority in the plan of God for his people. It's always been a priority. From the very beginning was a priority. And if you come to the the book of Exodus, where we have... Seven chapters, 243 verses that talk about the tabernacle. Isn't that kind of amazing that God would spend all those chapters, beginning in chapter 25, uh, of Exodus 25, verse 8 says this, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may do what? Dwell among them. 
I hope we never get tired, never get weary of the idea that the eternal creator God of the universe wants relationship with us. And we take that for granted. We take that for granted. And so God tells Moses, build this tabernacle. And he spends all these chapters, seven chapters, 730 some odd verses about the tabernacle. How important is uh, the account of creation in comparison to that? Two chapters, 33 verses. When God created the universe, this planet we inhabit, and all the stars, the sun, the moon, and all the rest of the planets, and everything else that's out there, when God created all that, when God built that, it's described in two chapters, 30-some-odd verses. When God tells Moses to build a place for worship, seven chapters, 700 verses. Does that strike you as just a little bit odd? Not in God's plan. From the very beginning, it's always been God's plan for people to worship Him. The tabernacle, by the way, that Moses constructed, I don't know if it's fair to say it was kind of an ugly thing. You know, you think of these great cathedrals that have been built over the centuries. The great, you know, the big cathedral of Notre Dame that was just destroyed and burned and hundreds of years old. And these great cathedrals around the planet. God designed this tabernacle. It's not particularly attractive. It's not beautiful. And I think, why is that? Because the point isn't the building. The point is what? The guy that inhabits it, if I can use that phrase about our God. It's not about the beauty of the building. It's about the great God that we worship and serve. That's what's important. The tabernacle didn't have chairs where you could go in and sit down. Why is that? There's no concerts going on. There's no big productions taking place. What's taking place at the tabernacle? Worship. Worship. <laughs> How important is worship to our God? I'd say it's pretty important. By the way, in order to be a soldier in the Old Testament... You had to be 20 years of age. In order to serve as a Levite, you had to be 25 years of age. Before you could serve as a priest in the tabernacle, you had to be 30 years old. Now, why is that? Well, my guess is, because I don't have a clear answer, but my guess is the importance of worship means you need to have a little more maturity. You need to have a little more life skill and life experience. And so the, the priest was ten years older than a soldier. The importance of worship. The third thing that's impressed me as I, as I think about worship is not only that it's the most important first commandment, it's always been a priority with God, but it's going to be the priority activity when we all get to heaven. That's what's going to take place there. And if, if you find worship kind of tedious, and even some people I've heard use the word, it's kind of boring, really. 
Well, you better practice up because we're going to be doing a whole bunch of it in heaven, right? I think so. I think so. One of my favorite passages in the book of Revelation says it this way. The Apostle John had this great opportunity to get a glimpse of heaven. And in Revelation chapter 4, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open. And I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. And it said, I'll show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, there was a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, like a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. That's kind of cool. Like an emerald in appearance around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting. Most Bible scholars believe those 24 elders represent, at least in part, you and me, the body of Christ. Clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. That's us in heaven. And there's this brief description of these four creatures that are flying around with their wings and everything. And they're crying out in verse 8. And we just sang this a few minutes ago. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will do what? Fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you, were, you have created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. That's the song we get to sing forever and ever, right? How important is worship? It's going to go on for all eternity. All eternity. Now, how many of you think today, I've got a really awesome, great singing voice? Am I the only one? Um, no, I'm not. How many of you think you've got just kind of an adequate singing voice? Like a couple of hands like this. That's me. I'm, I'm an adequate man. Then there's those, the rest of us who think we really have poor singing voices. And, you know. So, guess what? You with the poor singing voice, you're going to be a rock star in heaven. Not because you have an awesome voice, but because you have an awesome God. And we're going to worship, attribute praise and glory and honor who He is and what He does forever and ever. So if you get weary of worship, you're going to hate heaven. And then the fourth thing that's impressed me as I've thought about the importance of worship is that it was clearly a priority for Jesus. And there's two stories in the New Testament that I've always loved. Uh, The one story happens in John chapter 12, where Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And and Mary has this box of precious ointment that she she breaks and pours on Jesus' feet. And and you remember remember the story where Judas Judas is criticizing because this money could have been spent on the poor and so on. But Jesus accepted that expression of worship and love and adoration. Fully accepted it. 
The other passage that I've always loved is in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus now is in the home of Mary and Martha again. And you're familiar with the story, I'm sure, where uh, Jesus, it says in verse 38, he's traveling along. A woman named Martha welcomes him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted by all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled, bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Literally not robbed, stolen. So, in that account with Mary and Martha, and I could talk about that for another half hour, but I know at least one person is planning to walk out the back doors if I'm not done by a quarter after, so we're not going to do that. Um, but in this story, here's Martha actively, busily serving Jesus. And most of us are far more comfortable in that role of serving and doing than we are in simply sitting at Jesus' feet. I'm guilty of that. We're much more fulfilled to be serving and busy and doing, just as Martha was running around the kitchen getting, getting dinner ready. And isn't it interesting that she criticizes Jesus for letting Mary sit at His feet and worship Him, listen to His Word. You ever criticize Jesus? It's not a good idea. But she's critical. And Jesus says to Martha, one thing is necessary. One thing. What is it? Worship. There you go. You got it. One thing is necessary. And we fill our lives with all kinds of stuff, don't we? We fill our lives with all kinds of busyness, even serving the Lord. And what takes second place or last place is what? Worship. Time alone with Jesus. There's a chorus that uh, I think the Maranatha singers originated it, so it probably goes all the way back to the 70s. And it says, One thing is needful, O my Father. One thing is needful, O my God. That I sit at your feet and pour out my love. This thing is needful. That's what Jesus said. One thing is necessary. Just one. To sit at his feet. So how important is worship? Is there anything more important? Is there anything more important? No. One thing is needful. One thing is important. And so, the question I ask myself then is, I need to develop a worshiping mindset in my life. If I'm going to be an intentional worshiper, doesn't the word intentional suggest planning, preparing, thinking ahead? Um, intentional is kind of the opposite of something that's just spontaneous. It just happens. Uh, I think about it. I give attention to it. Worship is worthy of being given attention, forethought, planning ahead. And so four things that I wrote to myself as I thought through this. The first one is this, and I changed the pronoun from I to we just because I want to include you in this. Not only must I become honest, we must become honest about our background and our experiences. You know, we all have different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. 
we've grown up in, in church A and we spent some years in church B and now we're in church C or, you know. Um, and so we have all these different experiences and all these different backgrounds. We have different expectations. And that's why I found it so frustrating when I went to Sacramento to pastor. And it's like, well, we can't worship when the organ isn't being used. Really? Well, we can't worship with that overhead projector thing going. How can we worship if there's not a responsive reading? You know, that just totally threw me. It was just foreign to me. It was foreign to my experience. And so different churches do things different ways. I remember... (laughs) We went to a Christmas Eve service with my daughter and her family probably five or six years ago. And uh, I was handed a bulletin when I walked in the door, right? That happens at most churches. And I went and sat down in my chair and I laid the bulletin down and I looked at it. On the front of the bulletin, Christmas Eve service, in bold letters are these words. Yes, we're loud. Deal with it. That was the culture in that church. And I didn't like it. (laughs) But we need to be honest that our experience is different and we need to embrace. I remember years ago, I noticed when I walked in this morning, the the drums were back here, which I think is a great spot for them. Although, if I was a drummer, I'd probably want something a little more masculine than all those pink flowers, don't you think? (laughs) Gee! Couldn't you find any blue flowers or, you know. My wife and I sang in a group when we were first married called Lost and Found. And uh, about 12 or 15 of us, kind of uh, ensemble thing, guitars. And I'll never forget when we found out that one of the guys in our college group played the drums. And so we had Stuart bring his drums and we practiced with and there'd never, ever before been drums in our church in Long Beach. Never, ever before. And so we decided we probably needed to kind of ease the congregation into this new thing. Right. And so we're all up on the platform, spread out across the platform, two or three guitars and 12 or 15 of us vocalists. And we put the drummer dude as far away from us as we could over here against this wall. And we put a pillow in his drum. And so you could, you could hardly hear it, but it was a start. And uh, we would sing periodically over the course of months. Uh, we'd sing in church services. And, and so what we did is uh, the next time we sang, we moved Stuart from against the wall, and we moved him out about six feet. And uh, we sang and did our thing. And then the next time we sang, we moved him out about six feet further. And over the, over the course of, I don't know how long, a year or two, finally he was up on the stage with us, like, here, you know. Um, but... Things are new. Things are different. People have trouble accepting them. And we need to be honest about our experience and be accepting. Um, the second one is a hard one for me. We must cultivate an open mind and guard against a critical spirit that thinks my way is best, the only way. And there's times when I feel kind of justified after almost 50 years in pastoral ministry that I've kind of earned the right to be a little critical, you know. Um, and I find it so hard. I just, I just find it so hard to sit in church because I'm evaluating and analyzing and thinking. And um, The church I spoke at last Sunday, um, they, have, they have almost as awesome a worship group as we do. Not quite, but they're, they're very good. But one of the things that drives me crazy is they constantly refer to them as a band. They're the band. 
Well, what do you do when you go and there's a band? What do you do? Nothing. You sit and listen and watch. When you have a worship team, what do you do? You join in and worship. So if you ever refer to this group as a band, I'm all over you like white on rice. Um, But I found my wife and I driving away from the church service last week. And uh, what did you think of that service? What did you think? You know, and and we're kind of sharing back and forth. And she says, we really shouldn't be critical. I said, yeah, I know, but... This may come as a shock to you, but worship is not intended to please you and me. It's intended to please whom? God. And somehow we've got to keep that focus. You know, it's all about our God, our awesome God, and bringing Him glory and honor and praise and joy. I had an older couple that were a part of our church in Laverne when I pastored there. Um, I always thought of them as old. Um, I think I was 40 um, when I went there to pastor, maybe a little older, I lost track of time. But they were old, you know. And she played the organ. And my joke with her was, I said, Dorothy, I think you've been playing the organ here since you were like, what, three, four years old? You've been here like forever. And the, the first service we went to, they asked us to come down and visit. And she was playing the organ before the service. Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, all this classical music. I love classical music, and she's doing all that. And then the service starts, and the guitars and the drums and everything gets up, and they rock and roll, you know, for three or four songs. And it's time for the offertory. And Dorothy's up playing the organ, Bach, Brahms, Beethoven. And then she sits down, and the rock group gets up with their drums and everything, and, and they go it was just It was just a kind of a weird experience, just back and forth from, you know, contemporary to... Classical stuff. I remember Charles, Dorothy's husband, telling me one day, he said to me, Pastor, you know Dorothy and I don't think much of this modern music. And I said, yeah, I know, Charles. Then he said this. He says, but Dorothy and I have been praying for over 50 years that God would fill our church with young people. And he's done that. And I just thought, wow, here's a guy in, you know, of course, I'm 69, so I don't think of that as very old anymore. But uh, a guy in his 60s, early 70s that had that perspective on worship. It's not my thing. I don't love it. I don't even particularly care for it. But look what God has done in our church. You can't get excited about that. What are you going to get excited about? And so we have different experiences, we have different expectations, and it's so easy to be critical of what I don't like. And I need to be reminded, I need help being reminded. Um, Not everybody's going to preach like I do, not everybody's going to worship the way I prefer. Sometimes it's going to be way too loud! That's okay. Oh, (laughs) if I had my preferences... I would pastor a black church. You ever been to an African-American worship service? You have not lived until you've been in a black church. It's a whole different culture. It's a whole different way of doing things. And I love it. You know, I love hearing those people saying, preach on, preach on, preach on, you know. Amen, amen. You know, you folks are way responsive and I appreciate that. But you can't compare to a good black church. There you go. I love it. I love it. I got to be careful about being critical. Um, Here's a third one. 
We must seek to come to church with a spirit that wants to give rather than get. You see, so often we come to church to get blessed. We come to church to, uh, you know, receive this. or And we're, we're coming to give honor and glory and praise to our awesome God. That's why we're here. And to expect that you're going to get something, that's kind of a byproduct, isn't it? I get a lot when I come to church. And I'm so grateful for that, aren't you? But when you come to get, you miss out on so much that God wants to do. We become worshiping consumers. We come to get this or to get that. Um, Well, I could talk about this forever. Um, I have never, in the years that I've pastored, I have never told the congregation when I was going to be gone. I have never told the congregation that a guest missionary is coming next Sunday. I've never gave them a clue if I was going to be absent. Why? Because they wouldn't come. They didn't come. And so that mindset is, you know, I'll come if... Pastor's there, but, you know, the missionary's there. Who cares? We don't come to get. We come to give glory and honor and worship to God, right? That's, that's why we come. And we become guilty of being coming, become what I call worshiping consumers. And um, James Christensen in his book, Don't Waste Your Time in Worship, wrote these words. We worship God purely for the sake of worshiping God. When we attempt to use worship of God for the sake of certain benefits that may result to us, then we are using God and the experience ceases to be worship. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And then my last fourth thing on this developing a worshiping mindset is we must rethink our perspective on the worshiper's role in a church service. So often it appears to me that we come with the idea that the pastor is the performer and we get to be the audience and the critics. Or the worshiping team are the performers and we get to evaluate. We have an audience of one. When the worship team gets up on Sunday morning, there's an audience of one. When I stand up or Pastor Rick stands up here, there's an audience of one. Who is it? It's God. Our goal is to please Him, Linda. Make Him joyful. To bless our God. And our role is not to be spectators. Our role is not to spectate and watch. That's why I hate the word band, right? We're the performers, if you will. In this analogy, we're the performers, the pastor, the worship team, or the prompters guiding you and leading you in worship in response to God. And as that interchange is going on, the person who is the one that we're serving is God. He's the one that matters the most. 
So the question this morning isn't how important is worship to God? We already said 10, 12, 21, whatever you want to do with that 1 to 10 scale. The question this morning isn't how important is worship to God? The question this morning is what? How important is worship to you and to me? And if you were to give yourself a number on 1 to 10, I'm a 4, I'm a 7, whatever. What is it in your life that demonstrates that that number is valid? How to prove worship is important to me. When it comes to corporate worship, the first thing on my list is coming on time. We used to joke in Alta Loma, I used to joke often about the late bus. The same people, I was there 15 years, the same people, 15 times 52, someone do the math, I don't know how many Sundays that is, but every single Sunday, the same people, every single Sunday, on the late bus, about seven to eight minutes after 10, every week. Now, I've been accused of being a time Nazi. When I went to the church, I told Dan, our worship leader, this is my problem, so I'm going to embrace it. But church starts at 10. Not 10.01, not 10, 10. And I'm just kind of that way. And so, this late bus thing. is like, well, after a few weeks, they're always being eight minutes late. There is a logical solution to that, right? You know, you just start eight minutes sooner and bang, you're there. Um, you know, my wife and I will be married 49 years in another month, six weeks, something like that. And it, it's, you know, it's taken her a while. She's gotten used to the fact that I'm always early, 20 minutes early, wherever I go. We're going to come to church. It starts at 1045. We're leaving at 930. It's a 35-minute drive. What do, how come we're getting, you know, that's just how I am. But in my mind, if you're going to worship intentionally... I don't want to step on toes. I don't know who came what time this morning. But if you're going to worship intentionally, there's a plan involved. There's anticipation. And in fact, in my mind, you start preparing maybe when you first get up. And you start thinking, or maybe, bear with me here, maybe you start preparing the night before. Kind of getting ready to worship. Getting your heart ready and talking to the Lord about it. Um, if worship is going to be intentional, there's that idea of planning and anticipation. I'm, I'm coming on time. Um, give yourself wholeheartedly to what happens. Any non-clappers here? You just hate to clap. Brenda's up there, you know. It, nobody's a non-clapper. So if you don't want to clap, I'm cool with that. My problem is, I think I clap black. And so... Brenda's in queue up here and I'm off beat because I can't keep rhythm. I don't do rhythm. And so it's easier for me just not to clap rather than, you know. But as we anticipate worship, we plan and, and we're prepared and we join in with a whole heart. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your voice. If you're going to clap, all your hands, right? Now, Rick started a series in the book of Romans, I think, didn't he? So let's just say, for example, he's going through the book of Romans. And this morning he preached from Romans chapter two, verses 12 to 18. 
What would be a very logical, simple way to prepare for next Sunday? Open your Bible to Romans chapter 2, verse 18. Guess where he's going to be next Sunday? Chapter 2, verse 19, that next paragraph or so. So you could read ahead, kind of ask yourself questions, kind of explore that passage a little bit. Um, Private worship, I talk about corporate worship, but private worship, planning ahead, spending time with the Lord, prayer, praise, all those things that we talked about when I said, what comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? All those things we talked about. That can happen in your car on the freeway, listening to music. I love Southern Gospels. That's what I listen to in my car. Um, But to worship privately, to take time for prayer and praise. When you invest time privately in worship, guess what happens on Sunday morning when we come together? It's even greater because your heart's prepared. You're you're in rhythm. You're there. You know, it's, it's like when I played ball in high school, we had practice every day after school. Football season, basketball season, practice, practice, practice. Why did we practice? We had a game Friday night. And so I, I, sometimes I think of the, the, our private times of worship is I'm getting ready to be with God's people and worship together. To receive glory and honor and power and praise. How important is worship to you? If it's on a scale of 1 to 10, if it's a 10 plus for God, shouldn't it be a 10 plus for you and me? I think so. Lord, I'm grateful this morning that you're an awesome God. And you are so worthy of our worship, our praise. You're so worthy of all that we do as we acknowledge who you are and what you've done. Lord, teach us to be intentional worshipers. Teach us to be intentional worshipers on Sunday morning. Teach us to be intentional worshipers the other six days of the week as well. Teach us. Give us open hearts to hear your voice and to learn what it means to be an intentional worshiper. Speak that into our lives is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
created each one of us to be a worshiper. God, we were reminded of that this morning. God, I pray that as you are tugging at our hearts, as you are longing for our souls, God, I pray that you would help us to not be Sunday worshipers. God, that you would help us as we go throughout our week, that we would be looking for those opportunities to worship you. God, in the things that we do and the things that we say and the things that we watch and the things that we hear, where our hands go, where our feet go, God, that we would get to be worshipers of you 24 hours a day. God, would you give us a new mindset? Pastor Roy talked about that this morning. God, would you give us that mindset that we need to worship you with our lives? God, our lives are short. God, we're not promised our next breath. But yet, God, you know, you know the number of our days. And so, God, we give our lives to you this morning. God, we commit as a body of Christ. God, we commit our lives to you. God, help us each day to be a worshiper. God, not just a worshiper of things, but a worshiper of you. God, would you fix our eyes on you this morning? God, as we leave this place, may we be looking for ways to worship you. God, we love you. So grateful for you. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.